All right, so Romans 8, um, today's passage uh, really is, is structured in kind of a wonderful hymn-like way. Uh, Paul is coming to the end of arguments he's been making, reason, you know, reasons for uh, our salvation and reasons for confidence in that salvation and reasons for confidence in the Lord despite great tribulations and persecutions and the like of which he'll mention more of in this passage. And so it acts as a summary. Um, it's, it's a response, really, uh, a, a, a song-like response to all that Paul has said, not only in chapter 8, which we've looked at in depth, but uh, 5 through 8 really as a whole, uh, which we didn't look at 5 through 7, so you're just going to have to kind of be familiar with those. I don't have time to go through the themes of chapters 5 through 7, uh, but just trust me, it's wonderful, good stuff, all right? And, and you should read it if you have not. Uh, but the text here lays in two parts, and so I'm going to present it to you in those two parts. First is that Paul reminds us that God is for us. Paul reminds us right out of the gate that God is for us. The second part that we see is Paul celebrates the love of God in Christ for us. And so there's an everlasting love of God that has come to us through Christ, and Paul is celebrating that. And the two go hand in hand. And so I've tried to summarize it this way. If you're taking notes, which I would encourage you to do, uh, adults and children alike, uh, you have a guide as well you can take notes in. I've summarized it this way. Since God is for us in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from his ever everlasting love. So since God is for us in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us uh, from his everlasting loves. Now, if you would, would you stand to your feet as we read the word of God this morning? I'm just going to read verses uh, Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39 today. When I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to respond. Thanks be to God. All right. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For today, we thank you for this time we have to read and to study your word, to hear it proclaimed. Well, Lord, I pray that you would speak uh, through me. Lord, I, I uh, humble myself before you and ask, Lord, that, uh, that you would take your word and impart it to your people. Well, Lord, that it had not come through 
my own opinions or my own biases or my own uh, shortcomings in essence. Uh, but however, Lord, that it would come as it is, the unadulterated word of God, sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness for your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us life today, that you would grant us godliness today as a result of having heard your word preached. Give us ears that are ready to listen, hearts that are inclined to believe, minds that are willing to put these words to work as we dwell on them, think on them, and hands and feet, Lord, that are willing to go and do the work that you've called us to do. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Amen. So here in Romans 8, verse 31, uh, the first section I want to look at again is that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Okay, God is for us in Jesus Christ. And right here in Romans 8, 31, what you see is Paul begins with the question, what then shall we say to these things? Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Paul is summarizing what he has said thus far from Romans 5, 1 to Romans 8, 30. But this is the kind of statement that one makes when he finds out that something which once seemed too good to be true is, in fact, true, right? I, I remember being dumbfounded uh, by Patricia. Um, so I had been, uh, there's a long story, but I, uh, there's always a story, right? But I had been pursuing Patricia for some time, and she was paying me no mind, and not totally, but in, in essence. And so, but I remember the first time she came, to my to my house and told me that um you know that she was willing to kind of start talking and and what have you and i was just dumbfounded and here's here's how uh you know charming i was this is first conversation uh, about dating and all of that and i told her in in the opening moments i love you <laughs> to which she never answered for like the next three or four weeks um she just left me hanging but that's the kind of thing that happens when you see something that doesn't make sense right like how can these things be what shall i say to these things i love you right and that's that's essentially what paul is getting at here right having written and seen all that he has about god's saving grace toward his people over the last eight chapters paul now says what more shall we say to these things what, what more can be said? He, he's astounded by it. Like he, he thinks these are things too marvelous for him. It sounds a bit like Job. Now Job at the end of the book of Job, which again, a whole lot transpires, but Job comes to see God in a way that he has never seen God before because God speaks to Job in a way that he had never spoken to man before, at least that we have recorded for us. And at the end of all of that, Job, in, in verse 42, 2 through 3, says this to God. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then in verse 5, just a verse later, he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, meaning I've heard these things about you, but now my eye sees you. Now my eye sees you. 
And that's really what's happened to Paul here. And I think it's what's happened probably to uh, this church in Rome as they begin to read these things to Jews and Gentiles alike. And they see what's transpired for their salvation, how God is working together for their good, which is for their eternal glory in heaven. What then shall we say to these things? These things are too wonderful for us. They're so wonderful that they've got Paul nearly speechless. Nevertheless, he collects himself by the power of the Spirit. He sums up for us in glorious fashion what he is saying. And thank God he does, or left, we'd be left with a question. What more shall we say? Well, nothing. <laughs> right? But he doesn't say that. He says, what more shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a marvelous point. It's really, again, things too wonderful for us. Now, you may come to the end of Romans 8 in this study, which has only been seven weeks, and we flew by some really difficult things in Romans 8. But you may come to the end of Romans 8 with no small amount of questions, is what I'm saying. We've dealt with several difficult-to-understand themes, things you may, ne you, you may never fully plumb the depths of this side of eternity. However, this I know to be true. We must commit ourselves to being lifelong learners. Because once again, when you see God's truth clearly, your heart comes, your, your heart cry becomes, what then shall I say to these things? It, it's a cry of praise. It, it's an acknowledgement of the glory of God and a question. What more shall I say to these things? What then shall I say to these things? So if you have questions at the end of Romans 8, great. That means you're inquisitive. You're curious. You're using the mind that God's given you to learn. Fantastic. Do it. Right? That's fine. This is part of your growing in your knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we hope for you at New Life Community Church. When we say we exist to glorify God by growing in our faith in Jesus Christ, what we're saying is we hope that your knowledge of him grows, that your understanding of the Lord grows. We want it to continue to grow. But one thing Paul wants you to understand here, one thing he's making abundantly clear is this. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? It's really an incredible thing. In other words, the opposition of Satan, and his workers against us will never succeed since God is for us. Amen? Right. I'll be honest. I expected more of an amen there. But I'll keep going. All right. Throughout chapter 8, we've discussed the themes of adoption and sonship. We've seen that we are children of God by adoption, that God has made us his own child through his adoption, and that we are co-heirs with Christ. And, and so we are children of God if we are uh, in Christ by faith. In other words, if we have placed our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are a child of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, uh, our sure hope in the midst of sufferings and trials. It, it is your great hope when things are not going well. It is your great hope when Satan seeks to buffet you in all that he throws at you. It, 
is your great hope when those fiery arrows or those fiery darts, as Ephesians 6 calls them, come flying at you and all you can do in that moment is hold up the shield of faith that you've been given. It's faith in Christ Jesus that wards off the sufferings that Satan would seek to throw at you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he said, God is for me. We could say it along with Martin Lloyd-Jones because this is what Paul is saying to believers. God is for me. Go ahead and say it. One, two, three. God is for me. Amen. I am his child, Martin Lloyd-Jones continues. I am his child because he is for me. And if God be for me, no one and nothing can be against me in the sense of ever separating me from him. This is what we mean when we say that God is for us. This is what Paul is saying. Is that because God is for you, nothing can come against you to ever finally separate you from God. It's not that nothing can befall you. It's not that no one can ever persecute you. Absolutely, evil will happen in your life. You will be persecuted. You'll be mocked. You'll be scoffed at. Um, you'll suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Praise God we do, right? Because we read earlier in Romans 8 that we will also be glorified with him provided we suffer with him. So this is good for us. The truly Christian life is riddled with persecution and suffering. It must be. If you serve God wholeheartedly, you set yourself against the powers of this world, meaning you set yourself against Satan and his work in this world, meaning unbelievers who are doing the bidding of Satan, unbeknownst to them most of the time, will not like that you serve God. They will not like you for serving God. This is why it's important for you to remember, again, Ephesians 6, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against dark forces and powers, right? So even when evil is having its way in a person's life, you must have the wherewithal about yourself the mind about yourself, to decry the evil, yes, to rebuke the person, yes, in the right ways, right? That they are influenced by the enemy. In the same way that your mind has been transformed by the living God, theirs has been transformed by Satan. Right? And so it's important for us to remember these things. Yet, none of those things suffering, persecution, none of those things can ultimately separate you from God. How do we know this? Because Paul says so right here in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all things, sorry, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we know that God is for us. This is how we know that God is for us. How? Because he graciously gave his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is how we know that God loves us. It's how we know that he is for us. If you believe that Christ is the Savior, then God is for you. Because Christ is the only one who could ever deliver his people from their sins. Not only did he give us his son, but he made us his own children. Not only did he make us children, but true children in the sense that you are co-heirs with Christ. And so he will graciously give us all things. He gives you all things now for your holiness 
and in the life to come for your glorification. If God has given us the greatest thing he can give, which is his own son, will he not also give us countless lesser things as well? Yes, he will. Amen? Amen. Romans 8, 33, continuing on. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Here we see another way that God is for us. It's in your justification. It's in the, that erasing of debt to sin, right? Our debt freely erased by the work of Christ Jesus on the cross. So who can bring any charge then against God's elect? Now elect here means chosen ones, those chosen by God for his purpose. It coincides with Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, which we looked at last week. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ in saving faith, this is what we know about God's elect, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ in saving faith is numbered among the elect people of God. Anyone who calls on him to be saved. Those who come to faith in Christ will then never be found guilty because they are justified freely from their sins. For God declares them righteous forever. Righteous forever. There's not a time where you become righteous you're justified in a moment and then you know as you go and you sin now you're unjustified and then as you repent you're re-justified and so because that's a re-crucifixion of Christ in an essence and and Christ is not to be re-crucified it what this means is that you're justified forever and so as you go on in your life and you battle against the flesh and you find yourself in sin you repent and believe just as you did to become Uh, a part of the family of God. Repent and believe. Therefore, any accuser, any accuser of the redeemed, any accuser of God's peoples, whether they be Satan himself, his demons, or your very own conscience, right? All those accusers shrivel in stature alongside the risen Christ who is interceding for us now at God's right hand. They shrivel in stature. They cannot compare to Christ, who has defeated death and the grave, who has defeated Satan and hell, who has defeated sins once and for all. Those accusations cannot compare to the love that you've received in Christ Jesus. To make himself abundantly clear, Paul just restates the argument in the very next verse. He's like, hey, you need to understand this. Let me re-say it. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who at the right, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now again, this is a summary of all that we've seen so far in Romans 8. But especially verse 1. In Romans 8, 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul told you, At the beginning of Romans 8, what he wanted you to know, he's explained it all in verses 2 through 30. And now here again, he is telling you once again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn you? That's what he's asking. Who is to condemn you? All right. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, Christians will never be condemned because Christ was condemned for them so that they might live eternally. 
a Christian will never be condemned to death because Christ died and rose again. Amen? His victory is your victory by faith. His strength to overcome is your strength to overcome by faith. His willingness to submit to his Father is your willingness to submit to the Father by faith. Everything that you need, again, we've been saying this, all of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus for life as a believer. You're not lacking a thing. And Paul, again, <laughs> who is to condemn? No one. It was Christ Jesus who was, who was dead. It was Christ Jesus who was raised. It was Christ Jesus who was at the right hand of God. It was now interceding for us. So Paul is grounding the work that you know in your life that no one can condemn you, that Satan, demons, your consciences, nothing can condemn you. And he grounds it in the past and present work of Christ Jesus. He looks back, right? Christ died. He's looking back to the death of Christ. Christ died, and therefore, the argument is, the penalty of sin is paid fully. It's paid fully. Somewhere in Hebrews, which is okay to say because the writer of Hebrews says, somewhere it says, right? So, I'm going to say somewhere in Hebrews. I think it's chapter 10. Not sure. In Hebrews, we read about this great high priest, which we've received in Hebrews 4. But later on, he talks about how there would be no end to the, the, the offering of the blood of bulls and goats. That, that a priest would have to come into the temple day after day. Not only would he make sacrifices for the sins of the people, he would have to make sacrifices for his own sins because he wasn't a perfect high priest. There's none perfect, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. Right, Romans 3. But in Hebrews, what we see is there is one who has come, a great high priest, greater than the line of priests, which we know from the Old Testament, one who was able to not only enter uh, the, the glory of the temple, which is heaven, as it says, not only was he able to enter it, but he was also able to make sacrifices once and for all for the sins of all the people, and he didn't need to make sacrifice for himself, and so his sacrifice is once for all good, meaning there's, no, there, there's now no need to continue making sacrifices. And so you are, if you are in Christ, your sins are finally and fully paid for forever. <laughs> what an amazing thing. Christ died and the full penalty for your sin has been paid. By the merit of his death, he paid your debt. Christ is our able, all-sufficient Savior. Amen. Christ was raised from the dead. This is the second argument here that he's grounding this in. Christ was raised from the dead. It is Christ who died. It is Christ who was raised. In his being raised, what you know then is that his death was effective. Listen, if, if Christ needed to die, are you listening? If Christ needed to die for the forgiveness of sins, which he did, and yet his, sin, his death didn't accomplish what was needed for the forgiveness of sins, then he would have never risen from the dead. He must still be dead. But that's not what we see here. We see that he was raised. 
He's now at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. His ministry goes on. So his death was effective for the salvation of all who call on his name. Death was the payment for sins. Resurrection, then, is the legal release marking the debt of sin paid in full. Amen? It's why you, too, will be raised from the dead when Christ returns. Your debt has been paid, and so your soul now, when you die, your soul will depart from your body and be immediately present with the Lord. And when Christ returns, your soul will meet your body in the air in some way, somehow. uh, it, It will meet your body in the air, and you will live with a glorious body in the new heaven and new earth. You'll dwell forever in this state. Read 1 Corinthians 15 if you're struggling to comprehend that. Make a note and read it later. Not right now. There's too much good here. Death was the payment for sins. Resurrection is the legal release. Your debt of sin has been paid. Christ has died. Christ has risen. We have uh, hope then for true final salvation. Because he died and because he rose. We also see it in that he is now seated triumphantly at God's right hand. At God's right hand. This is further evidence that the work of salvation is complete. Again, he was raised from the dead. If that which he had done did not please God, if that which he had done did not satisfy the the need for salvation, right? If If that which was done was not ultimately completed, then Christ could not be invited back to the right hand of the Father. He he would have no place there. He would have been disobedient to the Father and what he accomplished. But he was not disobedient. He says himself and John multiple times that I and the Father are one. I only do that which the Father has uh, sent me to do. Right? I and the Father are uh, unified He makes those statements over and again throughout the book of John. It's ultimately what led to his execution. He was equating himself to be God. The problem was he was God. He is God. So this is further evidence that that the work of salvation is complete. All is satisfied. Therefore, accusations against God's children will not stand because we have a friend in heaven's court. You have a friend in heaven's court. The Son of God stands there on your behalf. And that's the next point he makes. Christ intercedes for his people on the basis of his own work. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for his people. Now here's what we know about interceding. Interceding means effective intervention for someone. Okay? It's, it's effective intervention. He's intervening in your life, and he always lives now to make intercession for his people. Now, what this doesn't mean is that God sits in heaven. You know, God the Father, their presence is in heaven wanting to whack you, you know, the whack-a-mole game. He, he doesn't sit there with a padded hammer looking to beat you over the head every time you pop up in some sinfulness. This is not the Father's heart towards you, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son, okay? This is not the Father's heart towards you. So I don't want you to hear that 
Jesus is interceding for us, and we know that that's a pleading, it's effective intervention, right? So it can sound like he's up there pleading with God. No, 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 don't do it. Right? Look at my hands, look at my side, look at my feet. They've been pierced, I'm bled, I died, I've paid that debt. Like It's not like he's trying to intervene and that God's coming at you to whack you over the head. This is not God's disposition towards his people. No, when you read that Christ intercedes, he lives always to make intercession for his people. That's meant for you, not the Father. Do you understand that? That the Father knows from beginning to end all that has happened. He, he has planned it all out, especially the salvation of his people through the death and resurrection of his son Christ, right? So he knows that the death was effective because he ordained the death. He, he did that work. So he doesn't need Christ pleading with him. Rather, when you read that Christ makes intercession for you, that's for your confidence and your comfort. That's for you to know that Christ stands with a body like yours, with scars in his hands and his feet and his side. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was wounded uh, for your iniquities. By his stripes, you have been healed. That's the intercession that's being made for you. I'll, I'll stand, uh, I'll make a few more comments here. He stands in heaven with concern for you. He's not unconcerned about you. He's not disconnected from your life. It's not that he doesn't want, he's not interested in what's going on in your life. He is fully concerned for you. He stands always, lives always to make intercession for you. This is his ministry in heaven for you. And what we read earlier in Romans 8, and when I say earlier, I mean a few weeks ago, right? What we read earlier in Romans 8 is that the Spirit of God intercedes within you and Christ intercedes on your behalf in heaven. So the Spirit of God intercedes, carries those things to Christ. Christ carries those things to the Father you can trust that everything that is being done in that intercession is effective for your life and godliness. It's really incredible, right? Christ is your advocate. He's the answer to all the accusations from Satan and his demons and your own conscience. When your conscience arises to accuse you of being no good and worthless, when Satan rises to accuse you saying, you sinful wretch, you do not deserve the love of God in Christ. When demons come to you to tempt you and your own temptation arises within you even, right? Not that demons in are in you, that's confusing, okay? But that you're tempted from without you or from within you, right? When those things happen and your conscience would accuse you, when those things happen and you would stand there in your guilt and your shame, you must remember you must remember that Christ lives in heaven as one who died and rose again, seated at the right hand of God in full approval of God's work, interceding for you, pleading his own blood for you. Able to save, Hebrews says, to the uttermost, all who draw near to God through him. Able to save to the uttermost. Why then... In sin, would you ever turn away from God? You see, this is the great scheme of Satan in your life. Guilt and shame 
are meant to paralyze you to where you will never run to the one who can actually save your soul. You'll go on thinking, I don't deserve the love of God. And the truth is you don't, but it's been graciously given to you. It's been graciously afforded to you. And so you don't have to run away from the Lord when you sin, right? Go and hide. I know I'm really jacking the camera up here. I'll stay. You don't have to do that. Instead, you can come boldly, as Hebrews 4 says, to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in your time of need. Because Christ is the great high priest. He's able to sympathize with you in all of your weaknesses because he was tempted and tried as you are yet without sin. Incredible stuff. This is why he's able to save to the other most. What great comfort then is this for you? What, what shall you say to these things, right? Now you see why Paul's like, what shall we say to these things? What room is left in your heart and in your mind for doubting when you suffer or when you find yourself in despair or all other manners of difficulty and strife, right? What room is there for doubting the goodness of the Lord towards you? There is no room now. That's what I'm saying to you. There is no room left. If you will believe the words of Romans 8, there is no room for doubting God any longer. Trust him. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, he said this, he said, because Christ is eternal, his work will always be the same. It is a perfect work. It can never end or fail. It goes on forever in all its absolute perfection and glory. Amen. No matter what may come your way, you can confidently answer those things, those people, if God is for me, who can be against me? Since God is for us in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from his everlasting love. Let's look at that second half of this now. Romans 8, 35 through 37. Paul's just continuing here with the questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. <laughs> Listen to those wonderful words, right? Though tribulations and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword may come to us, may threaten us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so what this means is, brothers and sisters, Paul is just not denying it. Especially in his day, his love for the Lord would eventually bring about his death. He would lose his head for Christ. Many of his brothers and sisters have already died for their belief in Christ. And so when he says we're being regarded as sheep led to a slaughter, he's being for real. This is not uh, hyperbole. He's being honest about what they're facing. Especially here in Rome, uh, where things were going to get real bad real soon. And so we're not exempt from dangers. Rather, we are empowered by God in the midst of dangers. 
We're strengthened to believe that nothing can take us from his hand, which is just what the great shepherd, Jesus Christ himself, explains in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 30. Listen to this. My sheep hear my voice, Christ says, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You can be certain then, you can be certain, as he said in Romans 8.28, that God is working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You don't have to doubt this. You don't have to wonder about this. It's important to distinguish between, and as you think about that, it's important because it talks about for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we need to distinguish between the tribulation of unbelievers and believers. I like what Robert Haldane said. He said, the tribulation of unbelievers is the effect of the wrath of God. The tribulation that unbelievers face is the effect of the wrath of God. But the uh, afflictions of his people are beneficiary corrections that, so far from separating them from his love, they yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness and are for their profit, that they might not be condemned with the world but partakers of his holiness. Again, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I'm reminded, though, of Christ's own encouragements to his disciples. Now, this comes on the night when he was betrayed, when he was led to wrongful trial after wrongful trial, and when he was ultimately condemned to death and died on a cross. He told his disciples this as he sees the growing fear in them as he's announcing these things. He says, I have said these things to you. I've warned you what's coming. I've told you about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you. I have said these things to you that in you, sorry, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Christ does not say in the world you might have, in the world you may have. In the world it's possible that you will. No, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I mean, be of good cheer, be encouraged. Be strengthened. Take heart because I have overcome the world. Charles Hodge said this. He said, all strength to endure and to conquer comes to us through Christ who loved us. Amen. All these things may seem like they could defeat you. Trial, tribulation, nakedness, sword, hunger, Famine, bright hunger. These things seem like they ought to defeat you. They seem like they ought to stop the work of God in your life. They ought to put an end to it immediately. And yet, God and his people whom he loves remain united and inseparable now and forever, even in all those things. And that is where Paul takes you next. Look at verses 38 and 39. For I am sure 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation just in case I've left something off the list anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord as I was reading that it came to my attention that boys and girls you guys are doing an incredible job and I just wanted to say that you're doing a wonderful job keep it up absolutely nothing in all the created world <laughs> absolutely nothing in all the created world can sever the relationship of love that we share with God in Christ Jesus that the Creator will not be defeated by his creation. That's impossible, and you know, unless it's Terminator and AI, right? It's a human creation. But the creator of all things, right? The God of heaven and earth, the God who spoke and things came to being literally out of nothing, out of nothing. He thought the things up, he spoke them into being, and they were. This God, nothing in his creation can thwart his purposes. Nothing can defeat him in his creation. Rather, rather, and it's important to make this distinction, it's not just that he won't be defeated. Here's what's actually happening. The creation will always serve the ultimate good purpose of the creator for the glory of God who created all things and the good of his people whom he eternally loves. That's what Paul is telling you here. That's important, right? Because if I think that God is in heaven and he's the creator of all things, and I believe that because that's what the Bible tells us, but all the things can just kind of do whatever they want and they can cause whatever problems they want to cause, then it's a chaotic world I live in. And you have a decision to make. Do you want Christ or do you want chaos? Because what we see here is that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, always interceding for us. And so you can't have chaos and Christ at the same time. Now, they can go together, but you're going to believe the one and the one's going to save you from the other. Chaos will not defeat you. You're more than a conqueror in Christ because of the love of God. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, what can be against you? Well, all manner of things can come against you, right? But not ultimately against you. Not ultimately to sever the love that you've received. That's not going to happen. Absolutely nothing in all the creative world can sever the relationship that we have with God, that we share with him in Christ. And so again, I'll say it one more time, the creation will always serve the ultimate good purpose of the Creator for the glory of God who created all things and the good of His people whom He eternally loves. Amen. Let me tell you what Charles Simeon wrote at the end of this. He said, Nothing, can, nothing surely can be conceived more delightful than to possess an assured hope of eternal happiness and glory. Nothing you can conceive could be more delightful than to possess an assured hope of eternal happiness and glory. 
He goes on, if we profess that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, let us then take care that nothing does separate us from it. Let nothing in the whole creation draw us aside from the path of duty or hinder our progress in the divine life. Amen. So here's the deal, brothers and sisters. If you've been saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus your Lord, serve him as such. If you've made him Lord through faith, submit to him as Lord. What I mean is obey God. See to it that nothing separates you. This, again, Paul makes the argument all the way back in Romans 6 that just because grace abounds does not mean we, that our sin must abound. He says it's the exact opposite. Because grace abounds, our obedience should abound. Again, it's like Patricia coming to me and saying, hey, you know, I think I'm ready to see what might come of this. I love you, <laughs> right? It's a really foolish thing to say. Somehow it worked. I think it's because God's greater than I am. Miracles happen, brothers. Miracles happen. <laughs> and so, when you've received the grace of God, though, when you've received the love of God in Christ Jesus, the disposition of your heart, right, the stature of your, your heart and your mind and your will is to say, I love you. And it's to kneel. It's to bend the knee to Christ the King. It's to say to him, you are Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I'm surrendering my whole self to your Lordship. Not one area of my life is off, of, off limits from you. Not one area of my life is my own. I surrender to you my mind, my heart, my strength, my soul. Right? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, in some translations. You're surrendering those things to him. You're saying, not my will, but your will be done. Not my kingdom, but your kingdom come. Amen. Since God is for you in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you from his everlasting love. Would you stand to your feet this morning? We're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. And so a couple of quick notes on that before my instructions for you. First is we practice uh, communion for believers here. So if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you've been baptized in Christ Jesus in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? You've submitted yourself to him then we invite you to receive communion with us today, whether you're a member of New Life Community Church or not. You are a member of the Church of Christ. Amen. Uh, second thing is if you have a gluten allergy, there is a gluten-free option there. You'll just have to look at the tape that's provided. Thank you, brother. Uh, at the top part of that. So trust you'll figure that out. Thank you. Often nut allergy, there's nuts in there. Oh, sweet. Okay. 
All right. So two great reasons to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. One is that God is for you in Christ Jesus. We looked at it, right? His death, his resurrection, he sits at the right hand of God, he makes intercession for you. Those actions, those works, save all who believe forever from their sins. And so I invite you today to believe these things, to trust these things, to prepare your heart to receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner as you see the work of Christ that we've seen today. His body and his blood are now provided in a, a cup for you to partake of. You're saying, I will always trust in the broken body and shed blood of my Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation. Second, as I mentioned just a second ago, we must take great pursuits, great care, sorry, we must take great care in our pursuit of Jesus Christ. You must repent of sins, believe in Christ for your forgiveness and salvation. This is the work. I, tell, I even tell children when they come and they want to talk about salvation, repent and believe. They explain, they've repented, they've believed the gospel. I just encourage him, this will be your life from now until your final breath, to repent and believe, always. You never outgrow repentance and belief. You never outgrow it. It strengthens your maturity. And so today, as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, if there's sin in your life, repent of it. And so we're going to sing a song together this morning. As the worship team sings, you need to pray. You can sing along at parts if you want to, but commit your heart to prayer in this moment. Pray for repentance. Pray that the Lord would strengthen belief as you receive Christ in the Lord's Supper today. Amen.